Do you want to start a podcast? I know I did, and you're listening to it thanks to the help of Anchor. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. It's totally free and has everything you need in a podcast in one place. You can record, edit your podcast right from your phone or computer, and distribute it to listening platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. Everything you need, all in one place, completely free. What's stopping you? Go get Anchor. Welcome to the Sports Moments Podcast, where every sports moment deserves its replay. I'm your host, Ethan Reese, a sports historian and a giant goofball, which best describes this bi-weekly sports history and goofball podcast. We're going to have fun and learn something and hopefully enjoy it at the same time. Now let's jump in to the Sports Moments Time Machine and go back to a moment in sports. The 1919 Stanley Cup Finals. What happened? Why was there no winner? We're going to get into it today. First, we're going to go through the Stanley Cup. How did it start? How, how was it? Lord Stanley Cup. And how is it still going today? As one of the most famous trophies. Try to think of other trophies. You don't know the name of the trophy. Maybe football, you know Vince Lombardi trophy. Did you know every trophy has a name? Because it does. And then we're going to get into the lead up to the 1919 Stanley Cup Finals. And what really happened so that it wasn't finished. And what was going on in the world it's going to sound eerie. It's going to sound repetitive because it's very similar to 2020, 1919. The Spanish flu was going around at the same time. Very similar. So sorry for the deja vu, the bring back memories. It's going to happen. It's coming. Just so you know, we're getting in to this sports moment. So we always hear that the Stanley Cup is called so Lord Stanley Cup. Why is it called that? Well, there actually was a Lord Stanley. The Lord Stanley of Preston was appointed by Queen Victoria as the Governor General of Canada. So that happened June 11th, 1888. And he, he and his family are Canadian through and through. They all of you adore eh? Call everyone hosers. <laughs> they are Canadians. And what do Canadians do more than anything else? They play hockey. And he was a huge, him and his family were huge fans of hockey. Huge. Stanley was first exposed to the game at the Winter Carnival in 1889. Where he saw Mon Montreal Victorias play the Montreal Hockey Club. And the Montreal Gazette. Had a quote from him and he expressed great delight with the game of hockey and the expertise of the players. And they really only played in Montreal, Ottawa, the larger cities in the country at the time. So he, he and his two sons got really involved. His sons, Arthur and Algeron, 
really? That's what you name your kids? Arthur and Algeron? Arthur, one of the most unsexy names ever. Have you ever met a sexy Arthur? And then Algeron? It sounds like some Game of Thrones reference before Game of Thrones. <laughs> what are you doing, Algeron? You can at least call him Al. And as Paul Simon said, would say, if you be my bodyguard, I can be your long lost pal. I can call you Betty, and Betty, you can call me, you can call me Al. I hope he did that, because I know I would. I don't meet a lot of owls, my dear, or else I would sing that to them all the time. <laughs> I would. So his sons formed the Ottawa Radnu Hall Rebels. Arthur also played a key role in forming what later became the Ontario Hockey Association and became the founder of ice hockey in Great Britain. Their sons persuaded their father to donate a trophy to be an outward and visible sign of hockey supremacy, the champion of hockey. Stanley sent the following message to the victory celebration held in March 18, 1892. They didn't know about this game three years earlier. <laughs> they just jumped all in. They persuaded him. And what did he do? He bought a nice decorative bowl. Decorative punch bowl. Which silver experts identify as a rose bowl. Different than the football rose bowl. Of course, right? It was made in England and sold by a London silversmith. Sold to him for 10 guineas, which is about one quarter of an ounce of gold is one guinea, which is equivalent to about $1,500 today. All that for one of the most famous trophies ever. He had the words Dominion Hockey Challenge Cup engraved on one of the sides on the outside rim from Stanley of Preston. On the other side, the name Stanley Cup was given in 1893. Originally, the Stanley Cup was intended to be awarded to the top amateur hockey team in Canada, which I think is kind of really cool. I wish that kind of thing would happen today to the Montreal Hockey Club of the Montreal Amateur Athletic Association. Eventually, other teams outside of Canada started to challenge, and they were open to this challenge as long as they fit the certain criteria to be able to accept the match. In 1922, with the creation of the Western Hockey League, the Western Canada Hockey League, three leagues competed for the Cup. Two league champions would face each other for the right to challenge for the championship but this league folded in 1926, was quickly replaced by the Pioneer Hockey League. However, in the meantime, the NHL, which entered the U.S. only a couple years earlier, bought up the contracts to all the WHL players, largely used them at, to stock the rosters of their new U.S. teams, which included teams we know today the Black, Chicago Blackhawks, 
Detroit Red Wings, New York Rangers, and then the Prairie Hockey League only lasted two seasons. And over the next two decades, other leagues in the club occasionally issued challenges, but none of them accepted the cup by the cup trustees as being acceptable challenges within the parameters of it. And in 1947, finally, they allowed the NHL to acquire the rights to play for the Cup. And this is how it became the NHL's Championship Cup. And it's an interesting cup. Like It's one of the only trophies we give out in a major league that, cont- that travels, that has everyone that has won it on it. If you notice, the cup kind of is a very tall cup. If you ever look at the standing cup, it's tall and it has like different levels. Those different levels actually say who's won at what time. And it just gets larger. They just add another level after a certain amount of time to get to where they are. And they can continue to add to it and add to it. And it's just going to become this huge tower eventually, of course. It would be crazy, but it could become a huge, huge tower. But right now, it's roughly three feet. That's a tall trophy, tall trophy. And it's just a crazy amount of history that goes into this trophy. There's so much more involved in it. We could go through a whole thing with Stanley Cup. But just kind of get to this, because this was one of those events. This is one of those games where it was... In one of the only years, no one has ever won the Cup because of outside forces. You couldn't have a legit chance. So let's get into the two teams involved in this 1919 Stanley Cup Finals. Now it takes two teams to get a championship. So let's get into those two teams. Let's start with the one you probably heard of still around today. The Montreal Canadiens, or with the name that it was founded under, Les Canadiens. Because they were founded by a Frenchman. They were founded by J. Ambrose O'Brien in 1909 for the National Hockey Association, a forerunner to the NHL. It was to be a team of French speaking community in Montreal with many of them going oh look at my beret and baguette they didn't say that probably not because they don't have a terrible French accent so the players were supposed to be French speaking under French speaking ownership and the name was Les Canadiens the team's first season of course was not good as most teams first seasons aren't but eventually they became better and better and in 1915 they won their first Stanley Cup in 1917 with four other NHA teams they formed the NHL and they were the first NHL team to win the cup during the 1923-1924 season now I won't go into every little thing about them because they have a long successful history but just know they have won the Stanley Cup every decade in the 1900s 
they at least won one Stanley Cup every decade, and that streak stopped in the 2000s. But they were, were the first NHL team to reach 3,000 victories during their 100th anniversary season. And of course, fitting that this story talks about a pandemic, during the pandemic shortened weird season, they actually made the Stanley Cup Finals and unfortunately lost to the Tampa Bay Lightning. So they were involved in a Stanley Cup during each of the last two pandemics. Weird! They shouldn't be allowed to be in Stanley Cups, right? I mean, that's a sign. Don't allow the Canadians in the Stanley Cup. Les Canadiens, they do not be in the Stanley Cup. (laughs) And even though they go by the Montreal Canadiens now, they still have Les Canadiens Montreal on their jerseys. You probably have seen their logo. It's the red C with the H inside the C. And there's another little C in there too. So that is their CHC logo. And it's been around for years. They have not changed their look or anything like that. The red, white, and blue colors scheme is still around today. Not a whole lot. That kind of longevity is unusual in sports. But when you're a historic franchise as they are, it's still really great. An interesting fact about them, their mascot, Yuppie, was the official mascot of the Montreal Expos. They didn't have a mascot for years until 2004. The Montreal Expos had moved to Washington, became the Washington Nationals. So they left Yuppie out homeless, you know, begging, panhandling. He was a really good fiddle player and was able to make a lot of money, actually, because, you know, he was just... And he became actually really popular in Canada. Charlie Daniels, Devil Went Down to Georgia, Yippie Went Down to Montreal. With his own version of Devil Went Down to Georgia, it was the Expos Went Down to Washington. He didn't become famous for that, but that would have been so crazy. Just imagine walking on the street seeing this crazy fiddle player. We'll, we'll put a picture up of Yippie. He's a, a mascot through and through. Looks like a Muppet. Not trying to be any kind of animal, really. Just a fuzzy thing, pretty much. That's what he is. But after they left, after the Expos left, he was adopted by the Canadians. And this is the first time in North American sports where a mascot traded sports. It's not. It's very unusual, and mascots haven't been around forever, but they're very beholden to their teams. So, very interesting. Now, who are they facing? The daunted Seattle Metropolitans. Because they were very fancy with their Metropolitans. They read Cosmo and the New Yorker. They were a very sophisticated hockey team. I don't know. What is a Metropolitan... Well, they were named after a building. They were formed by Frank and Lester Patrick, owners of the Pacific Coast Hockey Association. And the name, the Metropolitans, come from the Metropolitan Building Company. Very original. It's like the Green Bay Packers are named after the Acme Packing Company. And you might hear me 
refer to them as the Seattle Mets because the Mets is short for Metropolitan. If in case you didn't know, the New York Mets' full name is the New York Metropolitans. So the company that they were named after actually built the Seattle Ice Arena where they played. So it made sense for that company to be named after them. Now there was a battle at this time between the NHA, where the Canadians were in, and the PCHA, which the Metropolitans were in, battling for these players. You know, they're, Seattle's in the U.S., but it's very close to Canada, near Vancouver, a very large city in Canada. So there's lots of good talent in the area because Canada is just better at hockey. But we're very good. We're very good in the U.S. at hockey, especially in the north where hockey gets played more. Owners have caught the Ottawa Senators trying to poach players multiple times. They tried to poach the Toronto Blue Shirts. Very original name. They wore blue shirts, so let's name blue shirts. The blue shirts folded, and they took five of their players and really made them a legitimate team because before they folded, the blue shirts had actually won the Stanley Cup. So they were a good team, and they were able to acquire good players because of all this uncertainty and turmoil in the hockey leagues where teams were folding, new teams were coming, everything like that. And they were able to poach very good players. And in all this uncertainty, they were able to actually keep a lot of their players. So many players at this time played for a contract for one year. You're going to play this season, and then we might sign you next season, or we may not be a team anymore, so maybe you'll go with another team. They were actually able to keep majority of their players for six to seven years continuously, which is more common now signing longer contracts, but back then very uncommon and really helped them be a very strong force in the hockey area because they were able to keep that continuity with players. When you play with someone continuously, you're going to be better than someone you've never played with because you don't know that person, their skill, what they're doing, what they might even be thinking. And they were, they were strong. Remember in this time, they actually beat the Montreal Canadiens in 1917 to win the Stanley Cup, becoming the first U.S. team to win the Stanley Cup. Before this, only Canadian teams have won it. And they were the first to win it and won it handedly. The Canadians were favored in the time, and they destroyed them in the game one of the series. And then the Mets came back and just destroyed them for the rest of the series and just blew them out of the water, winning with a combined score of all the games, 23-11. to 11. That's, that's blowing them out. And as you know, they, of course, made it to the 1919 Stanley Cup Finals, which we are going to talk about in more detail a little bit later. But let's finish up their history because the next year they go to the Stanley Cup Finals again and lose to the Ottawa Senators. Uh, in 1922, they formed a, a partnership, the Western Canada Hockey League, so that both the games they played against each other counted in their standings. This allowed Seattle that year, who had a losing record, to win 
the season championship because they all <laughs> were losing to the Western Canada Hockey League. In 1924, though, sad news. That company that you named your team after, the Metropolitan Building Company, well, they built the Olympic Hotel and told the ice rink that they needed to take this to make it into a parking garage. The fran- franchise leaders tried to secure funding to build their own arena, but they couldn't do it. And unfortunately, they folded that year because of a hotel parking garage. Pro teams was that easy to let go back then. Couldn't get the funding to build your own arena, so you had no place to play. Hockey, you need a very specific place to play. And they lost out. And they lost the team. And unfortunately, Seattle lost the team for years. Until just this year, past year, the Seattle Krakens joined the NHL. And they are actually paying homage to the, the Metropolitans by wearing you know, retro jerseys throughout the season that are similar to the ones they wore for the Seattle Metropolitans. So that's a great homage to it. And Seattle is a great hockey city. I mean, being that close to Canada, you have you know a lot of people that go back and forth and have ties to hockey because the area is has had, you know, minor league teams and great youth hockey, but never had that opportunity to bring a pro team back to it that stayed. And the Seattle Krakens are here to stay. They got the backing of the NHL, and it's great that they're able to pay homage to the the Mets. And now, let's get into the matchup of the Les Canadiens and the Seattle Metropolitans in the 1919 Stanley Cup Finals. What happened? Why? Was there no winner? So the story of this Stanley Cup final actually starts one year earlier in 1918. A little earlier than the end of World War I. A huge event in the world. Something else was happening at the same time that would end up being more lethal than the war itself. The soldiers all returned home to huge parades, public gatherings. And these guys were actually infected with the Spanish flu, which is a H1N1 swine-type flu. There was no vaccine, no herd immunity, and it was spreading rapidly. Despite its name, it did not actually start in Spain. It actually started in America. According to documentation, it could have started multiple places. But the first documentation is in Kansas at an army base. And the reason that it gets called Spanish flu is because Spain was one of the few countries that allowed the reporters to report about anything going on during the war. Anything negative going on during the war in America or a lot of the places that were fighting, they didn't want to talk about that. They wanted to talk about the war almost ending, they're winning, victory lap, let's go. They didn't want to talk about it, but Spain would. And that's why it got called the Spanish flu, because they were reporting about it. 
In over two years, the Spanish flu ended up killing 50 million people. And that included 55,000 in Canada and 675,000 in the United States. This came in about two waves. And more than half died in the second wave, which lasted three months in the late 1918. If you adjust for the amount of population growth we had today, if a third of the population were to die today, 2.6 billion people. I know COVID has been a disaster. Crazy. But our response to it has completely lessened what could have happened and what did happen just over a century ago. It's been tough. It's been hard. But we've made it to almost normal. We just passed a million people being killed by this in the U.S. That is more than should have died from this. It could have been a lot worse if it was the effect of the Spanish flu. In October 1918, Seattle had shut pretty much everything down. The lockdown, it was happening 100 years ago, the same as it did here. Schools, bars, restaurants, public gatherings, all shut down. But in January, the restrictions were lifted. Schools went back to session. Bars, restaurants opened, allowing patrons to gather again. And sports started again. Just put into um, some perspective of what was going on in sports as well. Jack Dempsey, one of the largest fighters, boxers at the time, you know, postponed his one of his fights. Many high school and colleges shortened or did not even play their sporting events that season. Michigan and Pittsburgh were named the college football national championships, and they only each played five total games. Major League Baseball was the dominant sport at the time. Worried about the infection, they actually banned the spitball, which later got banned anyway, but they banned the spitball due to possible contagion. They didn't have the stuff we had a day, but spitting on a ball, passing it around to everybody, it's a good idea. At least they knew enough not to do that anymore. Because first off, gross. And you're going to throw that to someone else who's catching it with their bare hand? Would you want someone to spit in your hand? <laughs> Just chills. Gosh, catchers back then, they had to put up a lot. <laughs> and even the biggest star, Babe Ruth, caught Spanish flu, or what they thought might have been Spanish flu, during the whole first season, or whole first month of that year, and was out. He later recovered, and won the World Series with the Red Sox that year. That was played... When another wave was coming and fans were in the stadium in Fenway, which became an epicenter for the infection. And it grew in this location 
I'm just trying to. <laughs> Every time I think of Boston, just imagine all those people. Yo, I'm wicked sick over here. This is awful. Um, I may pass away, but gold socks worth it. We won the championship, and we won't win another one for years. <laughs> so definitely worth it for them. I would think. Not really. You know the people. You know the fans that, you know, death is worth it to their fan fandom. But no sport, however, was infected quite like hockey. Reason being, it was such an enclosed place. You had to play hockey most of the time in an arena indoors. Baseball, outdoors. Football, outdoors. Basketball was still in its infancy a little bit. Wasn't as predominant. So hockey, what led to these teams actually facing off? The Canadians won the first half of the 18-19 regular season, while Ottawa Senators finished second. Crazy that these two teams still around, still in the NHL, were playing for the championship over 100 years ago. Still crazy to me. They ended up playing a best-of-seven series for the title of NHL champion. And the Canadians won four to one. Meanwhile, the Mets, the Seattle Metropolitans, they're so fancy with the Metropolitans and the Cosmos, they finished the 1919 PCHA regular season in second place, 11 and nine record behind the Vancouver. I want to be a millionaire so bad. The Vancouver Millionaires. And the Vancouver Millionaires, despite what it sounds, they weren't millionaires. And they got their name just because they paid a lot for their players. Not millions, thousands, not even tens of thousands, thousands. As you will hear later, you know, one of the top players for the Metropolitans made $600. And the the millionaires were playing three to four to five thousand dollars for some of their players, so that's where they became the millionaires. Like, oh la di da! And first off, I just want to say the PCHA had some very nice names. You had the Metropolitans, the Millionaires, and the Victoria Aristocrats. Some hoity-toity hockey players, I gotta say. Yes, they were. The Millionaires and the Metropolitans faced off for the championship for the PCHA. And hours before the puck dropped on the first game, Bernie Morris, the leading scorer for the Mets, was arrested for allegedly draft dodging. It was a little weird, judged by the U.S. for draft dodging, even though he was Canadian. Very odd. I think someone may have put him up to it. And he was actually sent to Alcatraz for two years of hard, hard labor until he was granted an honorable discharge from the U.S. government and sent to Ottawa, where he eventually for the 1920 Stanley Cup. I'd be mad. What For one, he's like, what? what are you talking about? I am Canadian. I am not an American. I did not draft dodge. <laughs> like, 
That is crazy. That is, like biggest fear, biggest fear of my life, hands down. Being arrested for something I didn't do and nothing you can do about it. Nothing he could do about it. He got eventually released. Honorable discharge. Honorable means basically acquitted. Nothing. Without Morris, Seattle did end up winning. You know, game one six to one. Even without Morris, the Met Metropolitans still went on to win the cha- the PCHA championship and head on to the Stanley Cup final against the NHL champion Montreal Canadiens. So the way the the series worked back then is these were two different leagues, and they actually had two different rules. The biggest difference was one league played with six players at a time and the other played with seven in case you don't know six is the norm now so game one three and five were scheduled to be the pch rules in game two three four two four and six were scheduled to be the canadians rules game seven happened it would be seattle's so this was going on in march 1919, and it was like they described it as the World Series of Hockey. Hockey was gaining popularity, but like at this point, it was huge in the Seattle area where they played all their games in Seattle, five-day train trip away from each other. So to go back and forth like we do today would have taken months. They didn't want to do that, so they just played all the games in Seattle. Huge advantage nowadays. And at the time, it was a big advantage, too, for Seattle. You can't really fault them. Logistically, it's how it had to be done. So it was a mad scramble in the town for tickets. And they sat about 2,500 in their arena. Not a very big arena, but they had over 3,000 people in attendance. People standing wherever they could go. Children were climbing up to the Raptors to look through the skylight to see the game. It was a huge event. Got to remember, everything was locked down up until this point. This is the first big gathering they had had a chance to go out and be around each other. That was huge for everyone around. Just remember how it felt when you could go places, when places opened after COVID. You felt like you could do things again, and it felt normal. You just wanted to, I want to break free. I want to break free. Oh, how I want to break free. Yeah. Oh, how I want to break free. That's how I felt. <laughs> and they felt that in Seattle as well at this time. Now let's get into the games. What is going on in these games? Now at this time, no TV, no very limited photography, and not a whole lot communicated about these games. But we do still have a little bit of stuff to go on. So the first game is played under the PCH rules, the Seattle Mets rules. And they take those rules and dominate. They end up winning this game 7-0. to which is a very high-scoring game in hockey for the Mets. 
low scoring for the, <laughs> the Canadiens. They scored two in the first, three in the second, and two in the third period. They just continued to ravish them. And then we get to game two. The Canadians come out and they're playing under their rules this time. Add in that extra player. And they end up even in the series, winning four to two in the second game. And Nuzi Lere scored all of Montreal's goals and was also a great actor in the movie The Newsies, which was inspired by it. No. Not th- nothing to do with the musical newsies, but really unique name. <laughs> and they pretty much dominated. They took the lead and never relinquished it. It was 4-0 up until 32 seconds left in the game. And the Mets scored two goals in the final minute of the game. So they wanted to make it respectful. They did not give up. In game three, back under the PCH rules, the Mets won easily 7-2 to again. When they get under their rules, they are rolling. They scored four goals in the first. And once you take that commanding lead, it just devastates you. And it's hard to come back. And they ended up in the final two periods still out. Or the Canadiens, 3-2. to Ending up with a score of 7-2. to Now this is when things start to get interesting game four is back under canadian's rules and considered one of the greatest hockey games ever played and i always find that interesting to be one of the greatest games because usually it's just a close game what makes a game great is debatable but just because it's close doesn't necessarily mean it's a great game what happened in this game nobody scored does that make it a great game i don't know so they go the whole regular regulation period without a score. And then they go 20 minutes in overtime without a score. With both goaltenders blocking every single shot. Not having any issues. Although at the end of the first period, the Mets' Holly Wilson did score a goal. The ref ended up waving it off, deciding that it was scored after he had blown the whistle for the period. So it was that close. That one could have won the game for him. That's all they needed was one. It was so close. And get one called back, it's, just, it's tough. And at this time, literally, teams were crashing on the ground. They were falling over. The players were exhausted. Remember, they didn't have as big of a roster. You had two, maybe three, four possible, depending on what rules you were playing, subs. So you didn't have a big roster. You had to play most of the time anyway. You you were just exhausted after playing all of this hockey. So they ended this one in a tie. And the crowd, you know, even though they saw no goals scored or no goals that counted scored, they still gave the, both teams a standing ovation for a great game, if that's what you want to call it. Could have just been two teams playing terrible and exhausted out of their minds. They couldn't score. That could have been it too. 
Now, between game four and five, they were discussing what rules to use for game five. As they had finished the game four in a tie. And does that mean they need to change the rules for the NHL or the PCH rules? And they eventually decided to give it to the NHL rules and agreed that if they played in overtime again, they would play till somebody scored. They would not have another tie. Does to have a tie in the playoffs? Highly unusual. You mainly because you need to have wins. You play an odd number of games so if someone comes out on top of the series and do you have a tie, well then you have even number of games. So they decide to to go we're gonna play five and six. No more game seven. This will decide the series to keep it an odd number and they can have the same amount of rules that they were going to have before. Just a little different throwing in a wrench in there. So you throw in that wrench, it's a little more complicated. So we go to game five and Montreal trails the game three zero after the first two periods. And then Montreal comes back in the final period and scores three goals to force another overtime. This has got to be so exhausting. You just played the last game into overtime, going to the next game into overtime. But luckily, Jack McDonald comes off the bench and scores the winning goal. The Canadians tie the series 2-2-1. Two, two to one. The next game, game six, will decide the winning, who wins the Stanley Cup. But the end of the game, Coley Wilson from the Mets collapses due to exhaustion, which makes sense. Frank Folston of the Mets was was injured as well. So the Mets had one substitute, and the team was exhausted. And both teams were incredibly exhausted. Teams were exhausted by the amount they had been playing, and by the injuries they had been getting. And on top of that, two of the, the Mets players and both head coaches of each team woke up the next day with fevers of 103 and 104. And at that point, due to all the injuries they had and their coach being down and players having high fevers, the Canadians didn't have enough players to play the final game and were offering to forfeit the series. So technically, Seattle could have been the winner of the Stanley Cup. All they had to do was accept it. But Pete Maldon, the head coach of the Mets, would not accept winning it on a forfeit. Not only were players waking up six, they needed to be hospitalized. Four players from the Canadians needed to go to the hospital with fevers reaching as high as 105. So they canceled the original game. And they were trying to decide, what do we do? Do we play with substitute players? They were talking about taking players from Vancouver, bringing them down to play for Montreal so they could still have a game. But that didn't seem like it was really winning with the team that you had, so they didn't want to do that. Then they thought, well, what if we just postpone it for a couple weeks and maybe everyone will get better and we can just have the game. And that really disrupted the flow. You don't really have the flow of the championships and who knows also in a couple weeks will these people be good 
would it be better? Or what, where would we be at that point? It could be worse. And maybe there's another outbreak of this influenza. And they may have to just shut everything down again. Or more devastating one was just to cancel it. So they were deciding to wait just a little bit. Just a little bit to try to make the decision. Try to just postpone it to a later date. Makes sense at the time. You know, you just need to get your ducks in a row. But one thing happens that really decides to make them change their tune. And that is four days after this, Joe Hall, the enforcer for the Canadians. One of the first really enforcers in hockey. And by enforcer, we mean the the tough guy, the guy that takes all the hits, the guy that goes distributes all the hits. He wasn't a big guy, but that didn't stop his mentality. Most of the enforcers are big guys. He was 5'10", 175 pounds. That's not a big guy. Even at that time, he's not a big guy. But he had the mentality of being a strong force. And that was really important and starting to become important in hockey at this time. A little bit more about Joe. You know, he was Canadian through and through. Even though he was born in Britain, he was raised in Canada. In Britain and Canada, they have like a, you know, a bromance. Let's call it that. They are close. The Queen is even on the Canadian money. So they are very close. So growing up in Canada, you have some good ties with Britain, even if you weren't born there. So he be. He becomes infatuated with hockey growing up in Canada because it is a law. You have to play hockey if you're in Canada. If you don't, they will torture you with bad donuts and backhanded compliments, which is the worst a Canadian can do. <laughs> that's, that's just silly. They didn't do that. But hockey is huge in the area, and he becomes really involved in it and jumps up into the ranks of being a professional. And he ended up playing for two Stanley Cup winners with the Canadians. On one occasion, he started a fight with a Toronto player that caused a riot. <laughs> and on another occasion, he had inflicted so much blood in a fight that it caused him to be arrested and charged with disorderly contact. Really, enforcer type guy. <laughs> really shows you who, what type of guy it was. And he was big for the Canadians because he really provided that strong strength for them. And he was called Bad Joe because he's bad to the bone. Dun, 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 dun. Bad Joe. Dun, 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 dun. Bad Joe. They went to the future to get that song for him to come out to every single game. They needed to develop a time machine for this because it needed to be done. But everyone says, you know, he was that furious guy on the ice. And then, like that, flip the switch off the ice. Nicest person they knew. Canadian through and through. And then this season, he his contract was for $600. With the potential... Of a hundred dollar bonus. If you get that bonus, you add it all up, it's about twelve thousand dollars. That's not a lot to be risking your life in getting into fights, destroying your body. He had three kids. He was married. It's not a lot, but it is something. You know, he probably did something else in the off season as well 
to supplement. So he, he made it by, but still dangerous, dangerous thing. He went on the bench and sat down in just total exhaustion. And everyone just thought, you know, they had just played multiple games, multiple overtimes. Of course, they're all exhausted. They're putting their heart out there. But Joe was sick. He was one of those guys that were admitted into the hospital. His fever kept spiking. And on top of the exhaustion of it, playing for a Stanley Cup, putting your body, exerting all your energy to play the game he loved. He also was battling a disease that had killed millions. And unfortunately, his body just couldn't take it. And at 37, which was old for a hockey player, you know, had three kids and a wife back in Canada, he passed away. On April 8th in Vancouver, they held his funeral with the team, of course, in attendance, put him to rest. And that, once he passed, they decided they needed to cancel. They couldn't continue on with this anymore. George Kennedy, the owner of the Montreal Canadiens, was not only stricken heartfeltly by the loss of Joe Hall, he was also another one of the people that had to be hospitalized because he got the flu as well at the time. Now, he was able to overcome the short-term effects. But unfortunately, it caused long-term effects where his heart was weakened and more health complications in the next two years. And within two years, he had passed away due to complications of the Spanish flu. And Pete Modon, the head coach for the Mets, guy that was in great health, was a professional boxer as well, and an ice dancer. Ended up, 10 years later, having a heart attack due to a weakened heart from the Spanish flu. So this one series not only killed a player, not directly, could have happened without it playing, of course. But it was played and it was relatively wouldn't have happened. And two supporters of the team also eventually passed away due to complications from this time. As I said before, the Stanley Cup writes every single winner on the cup. But there is one slot, the 1919 slot, that is engraved. It says Montreal Canadiens, Seattle Metropolitans, series not completed. And that's how it ended. The next year, they go on. Spanish flu really just fizzles out. So now let's get on to the soapbox takeaway where I go on my soapbox to take away what I gleam from this story. Is sports worth life? You ask any athlete, they're invincible in their mind. So sometimes we need to protect them from things. But we thought 
it was over. It's hard to know when the killer is invisible. What do you do? Health officials said it was okay. They didn't do anything wrong. It's just unfortunate thing that happened. You lost a great hockey player at a young age, relatively. And the family is left to live without him, struggle without him in life. But what it also shows us is we can come back from things. We came back from this 1919 devastating Stanley Cup. Not only because of the flu, but just devastating to lose Joe Hall. To the sport continued to grow and grew into a worldwide phenomenon. In the Olympics, growing. Even in the United States, it's growing. It's a great sport. I don't understand it, but it's a great sport. And I think that we can continue to grow the sport. But I will leave you with this song. That sums up what it was to be a part of this. Why did we play it up to the Stanley Cup, baby, just to knock us down? And sick all around, and worst of all, we lost your heart, baby, and his amazing skill. But we played it still, we lost a few. Then we needed to, darling. Why did we? the star so what did we play it up the Stanley Cup it broke our hearts thank you for listening to the sports moments podcast I hope you enjoyed today's tale if you did please give us a review or five stars or wherever you listen to it helps us grow our community and help tell more engaging stories you can follow us at sports moments pod on instagram and twitter we post pictures about stories what happened today in history different things like that just try to be a good sports overall social media company we still are a new podcast we're still growing still working on a few kinks still working on our website So if you would like to contact us with a great topic or your view on any episode we've done, you can email us at sportsmomentspodcasts at gmail.com. And as we grow, we're looking for great youth sports charities to donate to because I think it's important to give the youth a chance to learn about sports and gain that love so they can become sports historians as well so if you have a a great charity that you are involved in or you think we should help out please contact us as well again thank you for listening and come back next week for another episode of the sports moments podcast where every sports moment deserves its replay